Diving Under the Antarctic Ice with Brittany Schmidt, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Cornell University professor, astronomer, and planetary scientist Brittany Schmidt has spent much of her life in science not far from our world's South Pole. She'll tell us why and talk about her slick sub-ice submarine when we welcome her in a couple of minutes. It's all in preparation for diving under the ice on a moon like Europa and looking for whatever may be living there. We'll also learn about the joys of eating ice cream at Cornell, where she teaches Carl Sagan's old class. Of course, we've also got Bruce Betts, who doesn't usually get to name-drop movie stars in the Space Trivia Contest, but he does this time. The chief scientist also has a cool random space fact and more. The James Webb Space Telescope is now ever so close to beginning its groundbreaking work. Want a sneak preview? Head to planetary.org slash downlink, where the May 13 edition of our free weekly newsletter is topped by a real stunner. It pairs an image from the older Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope with one from the JWST of the same region of space. Wow! I bet you'll be as blown away by the improvement as I was. The InSight Mars lander has scored a big one, maybe the big one. The probe's exquisitely sensitive seismometer recorded a magnitude 5 Mars quake. It will use that shaker to learn even more about the red planet's interior. And by the way, who says Mars is dead? Much more waits for you in the downlink. You can have it sent to you each week when you subscribe. Hey, why not also subscribe to my own free monthly newsletter? You'll find the link on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. Brittany Schmidt recently joined the faculty of the Astronomy and Earth and Atmospheric Sciences departments at Cornell University. That's after spending nearly eight years as a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. She and her team develop robotic tools and instruments and use spacecraft to study the worlds of our solar system and beyond. Ice and ocean worlds like Europa hold a special fascination for her, which is one reason she keeps returning to Antarctica. We only have time here for a few minutes of our in-depth online conversation. You can catch the rest of our hour at planetary.org radio and in the podcast. <laughs> uh, how many trips have you made to the top and bottom of, of our world? As far as for science, um, we've done one Arctic season looking at pingos, which are uh, an ice cored mountain that we find on the Earth and we think on Mars, mm. as well as uh, the asteroid series um, may have some relevance to the ocean worlds as well. Um, but I've now been eight times to Antarctica, a couple different uh, projects, different funding agencies, different international organizations, but it's been a lot of fun. So I'm uh, officially a, a bipolar scientist. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> My goodness. The interest that so much of humanity still has in the South Pole, that's sort of the popular version of it, but in Antarctica, that continent that uh, still has such special status for so many of us. Why is it so special for you as you investigate ice and the stuff that's underneath it? It's one of these places that just captures your imagination. 
And for me, it only gets more so every time I'm there. It's definitely not not a continent for everyone. Uh, not everyone wants to go be super cold and have everything just be a hundred times harder, but I really enjoy that kind of an experience. There's something about the scale of it. The way I, I would explain it to people is if you remember the first time that you stood by the ocean or the first time that you were in the middle of Arizona and it was a dark night with no clouds, right? The feeling that you get of being small and insignificant and just filled with awe at the size of this planet and what it does, that's the kind of feeling you have every day. At least I have every day that I'm in Antarctica. It, it's the kind of thing that at least for me has never lost its luster. And so getting to go down there is my, my greatest honor and kind of motivates almost everything that I think about. And it really changed my perspective on how we view our planet and how we view ourselves as part of that process. And then also how we see the rest of the solar system and how we explore it and think about it. And for me, I know anything I can do to try to help figure out how to make this place a better a better place um, as we try to understand other planets uh, that really resonates with me and so the chance to go down to Antarctica we're always trying to serve kind of many purposes we're doing earth science for the sake of earth science we're doing planetary analog research so we're comparing environments uh, on the earth to those that we um, want to understand on other planets and there's fundamental physical laws that we are exploring in this way that are very different from the experiences you'd have in other environments. And so those things are really important, but the preservation of our environment and our ecosystems and responding to the very real change that's happening as a consequence of our own actions is, is another very important part of it. So it's, it's nice because I like to think of it as it is, you know, there's a cost to it. There's a, personal and uh, carbon and uh, financial cost, all of this exploration. And so if you're just going down there for one thing, it, it, any more <laughs> any more things that you can bring back, any more lessons you can bring back or any more work you can do at the same time just increases the, the value of that investment. Let me ask you a question that has only just occurred to me. You've been down there enough times now and over enough years. Have you seen a change in Antarctica, have you seen it evolve or devolve due to climate change or any other factors? Yeah, absolutely, I have. So now I've got about you know a twelve-year direct observation, me boots on the ground. Um, but I've worked with people who have been working there since the seventies in some cases, and and then they worked with people that were there in the original initial characterization of the continent. For example, the snow style that we see is rapidly changing. Really? The amount of snow and when you see it is changing. One of the things that has happened is we're having to really change the way that we do flights. And that has changed dramatically since I started going down. Just in 12 years, the continued melting of the runways is getting earlier and more intense not the last time that I was out there, but the time before, um, I was in a place called Thwaites Glacier. And we were in a place that in the last uh, 20 years has lost, you know, tens of kilometers of ice um, mm. uh, off of this, this glacier system, this tongue that sticks out uh, into, the, into the ocean. As we're there, you can 
actually see kind of the crevasses working. Um, we could only be in a very specific area. And one of the most beautiful but disturbing sounds that I've ever heard in my life is on the warm days, we could actually hear the snow melting and dripping into the crevasses underneath us. And so these crevasses are bridged by ice. So, you know, the crevasse is a giant crack that goes from the surface or comes sometimes from the bottom down into the glacier. And normally you can't walk across those. You're usually up on, on snow. And if it's snow bridge is deep enough, then you're safe. Or if there's ice lenses that actually can reconnect across those across those crevasses. And they do that. And they do that from melting snow. So the crevasses happen, then the snow melts or the snow falls, and then it melts during part of the season and becomes an ice layer. But it doesn't mean you can't hear it. And so that was wild. It was actually hearing water dripping through the snow, like dripping through the fern into crevasses below us was a crazy experience. And that's not, that's an unnerving experience, right? You know, you're standing on top of one of these these things. So anyway, so that was a, a climate and a uh, an interesting experience. In fact, when we were headed out to Thwaites as a kind of as a joke, and in medium taste, we'd say one of our uh, one of my students who was going to a different part of the continent, much more stable part, uh, sent us with floaties. So I thought that was really funny. We had a we had a we had a gift <laughs> open when we got out to Thwaites, and it was like these tiny penguin or not penguin uh, flamingo floaties. Um, it was really fun. Kind of put around your waist. And yeah, <laughs> no, through your arms, you know, like the little arm flip. Right, right, um, right. But anyway, it was just really funny. So yeah, so there's a few experiences like that. It's real, it's happening, and and man, is it is unfortunate. We're trying to figure out how much, how fast, and what to do about it. Good Lord, that's disturbing. Are you headed back and uh, soon? And, and I hope you'll be very careful where you step. <laughs> um, I hope so. So we... Uh, officially just got done with our last currently funded project. We just got back. So we spent from October to January through the end of January um, working with the New Zealand program, partially funded by the U.S. program, but partially uh, funded by uh, by the New Zealand programs. We're starting a collaboration. So we're hoping that um, not this coming year, but the year following, we might uh, get a chance to go out with the, the British and the Norwegians. So that's our our newest uh, fingers crossed that that'll happen. Um, and so there's a, there's a few things that we're, that are, all, we've always got one in the hopper. So we're, we're trying to work on that now. I don't need to remind the people who are listening to us in the Southern hemisphere, but October to January. So basically spring and into summer in Antarctica. Are you still working with that very cool looking submarine that looks like a yellow rocket for use underneath ice. Um, what's happening with IceFin that you started to develop before you got to Cornell? Yep. IceFin is is still going. We're working on version four now. As any technologist will tell you, you're never, you're never done. <laughs> you always have something that you want to do next. And if you're a scientist, there's always one more instrument you wish you could fit on it. So we've been refining it as we go. And so um, I've just moved from Georgia Tech to Cornell University. My research group and the engineers and the robots and everybody are in the process of moving. Um, so yeah, so Icefin will be based out of Cornell now, and we'll be looking for its its next new projects. So we've got a few a few ideas for Greenland, a few ideas for Antarctica, and then uh, some new collaborations we're working on as well. So 
Um, that should be really fun. And then we're, we're also working on a, uh, we've call it salt fin. It's not really what it'll be called, but, um, we're working on a, on a, a robot and instrument package for, um, a cruise, uh, next summer to the Gulf of Mexico, hypersaline mm. environment at the base of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, we thought we'd, we'd give this whole field work in a warm place thing a try, but we're, very, we're not very, uh, we're not very trusting of these warm temperatures and sun and short sleeves and things like that. I don't know. You might get spoiled. When we look at ice fin, are we possibly looking at the ancestor of a robot that may someday go down through the ice on Europa or Enceladus and, and poke around in that's in those salty oceans? I certainly hope so. That is its long-term goal. Back to this idea of trying to do as much as you can with the resources you have. IceFin is a platform that we're using to test lots of instrumentation and also just ways of thinking about exploration under the ice that, that just aren't developed yet and that would need to be in order to facilitate exploring one of these, um, one of these worlds beyond the Earth. When we're working on that, we're also trying to do this really great earth science. And so there's this kind of meet in the middle um, mentality. So Icefin itself will probably never go, but I like to tell people that it's great grand robots will yeah. hopefully be in space. <laughs> exactly. um, and it's, and it's funny too, to, to think of it that way, but some of the instruments that we've already tested on it and that are in development are, are the kinds of things that may go to other planets, even Mars, just because it's being used under the ice doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be valuable somewhere else. And then the thoughts about like autonomy and how you think about experiment design and things like that, all of that migrates really well to other parts of, of planetary and earth science. Among the links that we will provide on this week's show page, planetary.org slash radio, will be a link to the IceFin site. And I hope people will go there, if only to see this terrific video made by the Wall Street Journal about IceFin and your work there. And you are, you are prominently featured in that video. Uh, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to look at. I love looking at the little, uh, what do you call them, thrust units or propellers that are built into this submarine, which has you know five degrees of uh, orientation that it can control. But, but also the controller. Can you <laughs> tell people what somebody sits with to, to run this submarine uh, way below your feet? Yeah, we use a PlayStation controller most of the time. So um, we can pre-program routes. We can uh, tell it where to go, but we also live drive it. And so, and it's actually one of the things I tried really hard not to do was to have to drive it. I, I liked what we called uh, either the the captain position or the mm. um, mission commander kind of role where you sit behind the pilot and the pilot's driving. But as we've uh, tried to become more efficient. And as we've gotten better now, we have the scientists driving the robot so that we can actually make our team smaller and do more science. So that's been interesting. So now I've been been uh, piloting the robot while doing the science. And that is, that's, that's a wild ride. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. That Wall Street Journal one is, is so much fun. They came out with us on a really exciting day. We went, we went out and explored a a couple of places. One of them was uh, it's an area called Barn Glacier. And then we also went out and, and toured an iceberg with the robot, mapped it and things like that. One of the things that is the most fascinating and charming about that video is the life that IceFin, the pictures of it, the images that it relays back up to you on the surface. Except that I know it's Earth life because there you were in Antarctica. 
that stuff, some of it looks pretty darn alien. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, there's some crinoids in that particular video, which is they look like a fur, like a, a fern or a bunch of feathers swimming through the ocean. They're really beautiful, amazing, uh, really cool things. Yeah, if you haven't seen the 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 newer one, it's on our website. It actually shows the anemones. Hmm. So that one's really cool because one of the things that we saw when we were out at Thwaites and we were there for climate change and and understanding the ocean and the ice, but we ran into this community of anemones that burrow into the ice, which is a very alien kind of thing to think about. So most anemones, well, actually, in, until these Antarctic ones were discovered fairly recently, um, most anemones that we knew of burrowed into the sand or burrowed into rocks. But these actually make their homes inside the ice and hang out uh, of the ice and they'll come out of the they'll come out of the ice and swim around and grab food and go back in the ice and it was really crazy because we came upon them in this area where the ice was very very clear we think it's ice that was accreted um, from a lake before mm. the the ice actually ends up in the ocean it's you know it's upstream in Antarctica so we think it basically froze on a piece of a lake or a river that was underneath the ice stream took that with us and then so as a result of those anemones burrowing into the clear ice, we could see them in their burrows, which had never been seen before. So you can actually see their little eyes, even though they're up inside of their burrows. It's amazing. That was fun. I really thought that sleep deprivation had gotten us that day. Because um, we, we were doing a mission and we we're going down to the seafloor and then coming back up at it. And I had run to the restroom. My colleague Dan had taken over the controllers and I got back and Dan's like, Brittany, something is weird. You're going to want to take a look at this. I don't know what's happening. And we're looking at this going, what? What is that? I have no idea what's happening here. And and it was so, so funny. Even though we knew that these these existed, people had talked about them and a few pictures had been out, never really explored them this way before. And and it was an amazing experience. But I really thought like, okay, we really got to get more sleep. Like what is happening here? I got just one more for you. Yeah. What's the dairy bar? <laughs> The dairy bar is potentially my favorite part of Cornell. Uh, there is an ice cream shop. Uh, it has a stellar dairy and the dairy pro science program uh, makes its own ice cream and it is there and it is available and it is delicious. So that is like, uh, it is Cornell ice cream made by Cornell people using Cornell cows. Like that is amazing. Cornell astronomer, planetary scientist and explorer, Brittany Schmidt. Bruce Betts is coming right up here on Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. 
The chief scientist of the Planetary Society has joined us once again to tell us all about the night sky and uh, resolve a contest for us, uh, which we won't be doing next week because I'll be away. So uh, you'll have to wait a couple of weeks from now to find out uh, who has won the last uh, couple of contests by that time. But, but, but today, today is just a, a regular day. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. How is it up in the sky? It's spiffy, Matt. Did you enjoy the total lunar eclipse? <laughs> Good trick, because it hasn't happened yet as the two of us speak. So I'm looking forward to it. I did see, because I will be in Washington, D.C. when it happens. Apparently, that's more centrally located for this eclipse. So I hope it's not a cloudy day. And It is indeed. And uh, anyone listening to this, uh, if you didn't see the eclipse, uh, it's over. Sorry. <laughs> but hey, fun fact, there's another one, November... Early in November this year, visible from the Americas and elsewhere. We'll tell you about it when we get closer. But there's another total solar eclipse and then nothing for at least for the Americas until 2025. But you get another chance if you missed it or another chance if you saw it and you just loved it. I was starting to say before you go on to the rest of the sky, and this is still the sky, didn't you just uh, finish a conference about a, a big rock that's headed our way? I did indeed. I attended, along with a lot of other people, a virtual workshop about Apophis, Apophis T-minus seven years. <laughs> the 400-meter-ish asteroid Apophis will fly by in 2029, closer than geostationary satellites to Earth. So it's a bunch of scientists and engineer types trying to figure out how to make the best use of this wonderful opportunity we've been given of a nearby flyby of an asteroid that's not going to hit, well... No, no, it's not. Wait a minute. If you learned something new, you'd tell me about this, wouldn't you? Maybe. No, <laughs> I shouldn't mess around with this. I'm sorry. Definitely, 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 definitely not. Apophis is not going to hit Earth. It's not going to hit. In fact, that was what was um, suggested that we say Apophis is not going to hit Earth. Apophis is not going to hit Earth. Apophis is not going to hit Earth. The three most important messages to get out to the public for 2029. Considering uh, all the talk about other stuff like that comet that is like going to come within a billion miles of it. But if you looked at some news sources, you'd have thought uh, that we were all goners. It was going to be don't look up. Well, we're all good, but it'll be a great opportunity for science and Osiris Rex now becoming Osiris Apex. We'll uh, check it out after the flyby, shortly after the flyby, and hopefully there'll be more good stuff. Very cool. So what else is happening? Check this out. This hasn't happened yet. Oh, people in a different time reality than we are. <laughs> Venus in the pre-dawn east looking super bright and will be near the moon on the 26th and 27th of May in this 2022. And a couple days later on the 29th, if you're up in the pre-dawn or you want to get up in the pre-dawn, don't miss Jupiter and Mars hanging out super close together. Bright Jupiter brightish Mars looking reddish will be very close uh, together, closer than a moon diameter equivalent on the 29th in the pre-dawn east. We'll leave that as our summary for the sky because we have much more to get to. Hmm. We move on to random space fact, a random random space fact. <laughs> I'm not in England yet. Not not as people hear this, but but very soon after the next next couple of days. Random space fact. 
uh, the surface area of Saturn's moon Enceladus, Enceladus with the geysers. Surface area of Enceladus is about equal to the area of the country of Turkey. Huh, that's a small moon. That's no moon. <laughs> Sorry. It's a small, yes, it is. It's amazingly small considering it's got all this groovy geyser activity going on. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you to name all the asteroids that are bigger than the asteroid Psyche that have been visited by spacecraft and don't include the dwarf planet series. How'd we do, Matt? This made some people crazy. Uh, entries were, were down some because this was, this was tough. Uh, <laughs> people think I do this on purpose. And I, well, maybe. No, I don't. I really don't. We heard from many people, like Jason Hensley in Texas, who did exhaustive research. He said he spent hours after he found the right answer thinking there has to be something else. But no, there's only a single object that, that fills the bill. And, and here is the answer in our latest submission from the Poet Laureate, Dave Fairchild, in Kansas. An asteroid made of Metallica rock will go in the not common column. It's part of a planetoid busted to bits when you get to the core of the problem. Now, Psyche is one of this singular bunch. If you asked me if I could suggest a asteroid bigger our spacecraft has reached, the only one out there is Vesta. <laughs> Suggesta. It's a word. Maybe. I, I kind of like that. Vesta, right? Everybody should yes. give it up after they found that. Yeah, it was tricky. I didn't want to I didn't mean to be tricky, but I didn't want to give away that there was only one. I just I think it's interesting. Psyche's the, will be the second largest that we've ever visited. Significantly smaller than Vesta. Psyche at 222 kilometers, average diameter Vesta at 529. Here's our winner, and it has been just over two years since he last won. And you know what he won over two years ago? A phone message from you and me. Apparently, we recorded a phone message for him. I do not remember that, but it's Neil Ashelman. Neil Ashelman in Iowa. We could sing the Music Man song, but we won't. He said, is it really just Vesta? Psyche is a bruiser, but we sure seem to be slacking here. Yeah, Neil, that's it, according to uh, the uh, the chief scientist here. So congratulations. He's won himself, so appropriate, a delightful planetary society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. You ready for the new one? I am. I really blanked today. I tried coming up with trivia questions. I was finding ones that I had used years ago, and I try not to repeat. So I guarantee I have not repeated with this one. This really falls out of the category of random trivia contest. What Messier object, speaking of looking up in the night sky with telescopes, what Messier object could have been named after, <laughs> could have been named after a movie with Natalie Portman? <laughs> Oh, no. Seriously? Okay. <laughs> yes. What Messier object could have been named after a movie with Natalie Portman? It, I mean, you've probably encountered that trivia question before from someone else. No. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. All right. You have until the 25th. That'd be May 25 at 8 a.m. Pacific time for, <laughs> for this one. You know what I'm going to do? Something I've never done before. I'm not going to tell you the prize. It's a surprise prize. <laughs> you, <you'll, laughs> 
<laughs> it's a black This is box. just a weird, weird question all around. I just yeah. thought that okay. because of, you know, how you put this, the question to us, I thought, I'm going to do that for this one. You will not learn your prize until you are named the winner. Could be a car. A random question with a random prize. <laughs> okay, it won't be a car. Uh, but it'll be something fun, right? You know, it always is. We're done. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look in the night sky, and think about what Matt's going to pull out of his bag of tricks as the next prize. Thank you, and good night. I have this great paper clip. Now we'll come up with something better. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its life-loving members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.